Hey, Carson. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Doing great, man. Just sitting out in the sun right now. Just feeling pretty warm. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, pr- it's pretty incredible that it's this hot in October right now. I can't believe it. I mean, I'm in Chilliwack. Yeah. I assume it's similar, pr- probably the same in Vancouver. It's really strange, but I'm, I'm loving it, honestly. Yeah, exactly. I, I just sort of felt like we needed to get it over with and say what everybody's saying right now. And, hey, how about that? How about this October? It feels like summer. And we've done it because, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, so how's the how's the clinical work going? Wow. Well, I mean, that's a big question. There's, <laughs> like there's how's, uh, how, 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 how's your clinic doing? Is there, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, is there any kind of specific focus right now or specific kind of pattern you've been seeing lately in terms of clients, in terms of any particular kind of energy in the air right now that's any particular focus well yeah i mean the the thrive clinic grew a lot this year and a big part of that has to do with us just being kind of in the in terms of western north america like we're one of the the bigger groups really actively helping people navigate their relationships with psychedelics and the (laughs) a lot of media came out over the summer uh, you know, the, mm. the, the Michael Pollan series on Netflix and, and just go yep. figure people jump onto Google. And when they find out there's a team of people who have an expertise in this area, people are pretty hungry to come uh, kind of do that work. But with that, we've seen just a big uptick in people wanting to heal in general. There is a hyper conscious awareness of healing since the pandemic. And that mm. continues to to truck forward. People are yeah, people are people are hungry to feel better and, and just start to be curious towards things in ways the previous generations really weren't able to do as much. Mm. Yeah. Um, I also want to note time here as well. Um, do you have about an hour, like around two thirty, two forty ish? Does that work for you? Or yeah, it works for me. All right, great. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, there's been a lot of buzz this year in terms of psychedelics. The, the Michael Pollan series you mentioned. Um, Rick Strassman had a new book out um, last month. He was on the Joe Rogan podcast. It's kind of the first time yeah. I've ever seen him talk about. Uh, just the first time I've seen him in public in a while. Um, so that that was interesting. And uh, I'm trying to remember, there were a few other things going on too. There was the big event in Vancouver, right, with Gabor Mate and Dennis McKenna. Um, that was that was really exciting. And so that yeah. that documentary Dose Two. Uh, that that was another thing, and Gabor Mate's new book, which uh, I might be reviewing in the New York Post. Fingers crossed. I'm working on mm. it. Um, I'm, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna get it this weekend. It's gonna come in the mail. I look forward to reading it. And uh, he he was on the Rogan podcast, also talking about psychedelics, and and he said that in the book he also goes into ayahuasca and ibogaine. So I'm sure that's also gonna create some more interest and excitement surrounding psychedelics. So. It's an interesting time, and I think if if the net effect is people actually using this for for healing and to actually explore themselves and the world around them, then that's amazing. Um, but of course, there's also the the risk of you know are people just going to use this as an opportunity to just recreationally you know uh, explore this area without actually um, using it as a real opportunity for self healing. Um, hopefully it's the latter and hopefully, you know, people coming to your clinic, um, have that healthy mindset 
or or at least you can guide them in that way because i i correct me if i'm wrong but you were telling me i think a month ago that a lot of people were coming to the clinic and they seem to have more of that sort of naive superficial kind of excitement about psychedelics like oh i'll take this and i'll get better overnight and i think you were more so kind of trying to push the more holistic side of things that this is not just an overnight process but it's a long journey that uh, takes a lot of work right yeah yeah i'm a broken record by now but that's we always we feel like there's two parents in the world and one of the parents is just like all really exciting and and has all good news and we feel like the the bad dad or something that has to you know be a little more realistic about things and and um i we're just constantly educating the public that psychedelics can be part of a balanced breakfast like they they can certainly provide with good plan planning like an, an excellent healing uh piece but i would just always say they have to be grounded in something bigger mm-hmm. like a therapy path a spiritual path a religious path and yeah we, you're absolutely right like when when the um how to change your mind series came out lots of people are just getting in touch and saying so i you know like i'm pretty sure that like lsd will will kind of fix everything and you know, it, it's we're we're just here to really ground some reason into people and just play our role in providing a just a con uh, a conscious caution that was certainly lacking back in the '60s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think responsibility is important, and you you know, um, one of the themes I was telling you before this podcast that I'm I'm thinking about a lot is love and compassion. And, and that's, you know, those are big categories, but really when it comes to the healing path, um, it's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive and it's, I've definitely felt that way in my healing path. Like I've been kind of stuck in a certain few different directions with, with certain behavior patterns that I've been trying to fix. And I've always come at it from a place of, of kind of like a David Goggins hardcore, like I need to fix this place. <laughs> and yeah. and that's and that's really hard um and, it, and it's never worked it's, it's always kind of been a dead end it's always like i can do better i can do better come on i gotta pull you know pull myself up by my own bootstraps that kind of mentality and it's i mean there's a balance to strike there and may, maybe people um may some people may lean too far in that direction whereas other people may need more of a sense of personal responsibility but I think for mm-hmm. someone like myself, and I think for a, a lot of people, there's like an, a, a very intense inner critic. Mm-hmm. And so overcoming that using love and compassion is very counterintuitive, but it seems to deliver yeah. a lot of results and to, um, I guess, kind of relax the, the hyper judgmental part that really uh, often prevents us from actually changing ourselves and to actually like change old patterns and to create new ones. And so is that mm-hmm. something that is, is that something that's been crucial in your own healing journey and with, with uh, treating clients as well? Oh my God. Yeah. It's almost the biggest measurement I, I look at in counseling for where somebody's at in, in terms of like, you know, feeling better is what is their level of inner compassion? And, and we often assess that through checking in how, how do they feel towards their own emotions as uh, like internal family systems would have it or for the right people? How do you feel towards your own inner child? If you want to get very metaphorical or how does your frontal brain relate to your midbrain for, for the more kind of neuroscience focused folks, but people early in healing will often say, 
like to their inner child. Oh, I, I think he's weak. I I don't like her. I I just I, I can't stand her. And here you have like the perfect model for that powering their whole mov- movement forward based on inner criticism. And and I would say there's there's quite a pandemic in the public psyche of people who've internalized critical voices from their younger, um, from from parents, from teachers, from bullies, to the point that that's what's fueling their car is, is uh, you know, David Goggins is an interesting case because while he, he's, it almost seems like he's running entirely on that, I would be curious to talk to the guy. I, I suspect there is some sort of love mechanism that mediates it. I don't think it's the same senseless inner criticism that I've seen so many burned out clients over the years running on. Um, and so there's, I would say the majority of people coming to counseling really benefit from internalizing self-compassion and love amongst their parts so that they're not in a continual civil war inside of trying to squeeze mm. blood from a stone. But then there's a balance to everything because there is a, a strong role for responsibility and discipline that that's important too. And so the curiosity is how do you, you know, how do you balance that very compassionate Carl Rogers voice with that, like clean up your room, sort of Jordan Peterson voice around, around responsibility. And, and, you know, there's a, that, that's just why it's just such a nuanced discussion. It's just, it's just never so simple. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are drawn to a Jordan Peterson like figure, including myself. Mm -hmm. It is because you, you know, you want to create a vision for yourself. You want to have this higher ideal. You want to work towards something. You want to structure you know, his future authoring program, like create these steps to, you know, fully actualize yourself. And um, that I think that's a really important piece. But I think I'm speaking for myself, and certainly for many, many other people, that piece alone isn't enough. And so that's where the more of that inner compassion can come in, because it's, I, I found myself, and I get the sense from other people as well. It's like, you know, you know, for, for a while, like this is going to sound very trivial, but for a while, I think this was after I graduated high school um, and I, re- I really didn't have a purpose. I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to figure it out. And when one of the things that was really well, one of the one of the behavior patterns that I was really struggling with was just getting up on time in the morning. Like I was sleeping at like 2 a.m. and getting up at like 12 and it was just, and I kept every day I would write down like a schedule be like, okay, I'm going to sleep at 11. I'm going to sleep at 11. And then it's, you know, you know, it's 11. And then it's like, there's this strong internal force of like, you know, life is empty, I guess. And there's, you know, now is the time to kind of have fun, you know, because, mm. you know, nighttime is, nighttime is associated with, with fun. Like there's, you can kind of make meaning out of, out of, you know, being by yourself or when everybody else is sleeping, you know, that's a time to you know, have fun and kind of explore and, you know, relax and, and those kind of things. And that's important, but absent kind of the higher purpose or absent having compassion for why this pattern, like why you're stuck in this pattern is really important because I myself was just constantly stuck in that over and over again and not able to break that kind of addiction of staying mm-hmm. up really late and, and watching TV or whatever and getting up really late and feeling guilty every single morning, you know, and this is, this is kind of just a universal theme right? People who are stuck in any kind of addiction, you know, especially those with far more harmful addictions. It's like, you're stuck in that pattern and you want to do better. And, and, and this also kind of goes to this, um, 
idea of the, 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 the self kind of being an illusion, the idea of like one unified self. It's like, we're, we're so many different parts, right? It's like, logically, I know I need to get up early or I know I shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> snorting this, the, this round of cocaine or, you know, doing this super irresponsible thing. I, I like people know that, but then there's this other part that's really compulsive and obsessive and it's often trying to like protect it from doing something else. There's just, there's just a whole, uh, range of inner parts that interact and conflict and are jarring and clashing and fighting with each other like a civil war um that, that you mentioned earlier so yeah. so so a lot of people feel stuck in that direction and i think for me i'm now kind of making progress with other important things um in my life um, some important uh issues and behavior patterns that i felt stuck in for a while and it's only really come through with having compassion for where that comes from yeah, and really understanding it because trying to discipline myself every single morning and kind of even for me, like I was really, I was so stuck and I, but I was so sort of trying to be disciplined. Like I would write every day, like, this is, this is what you're yeah. going to do. This is, this is what you're going to, you know, this is the time you're going to go to the gym this is the time we're going to get up and sleep. And I would write it down every day and I wouldn't be able to do it because there's some kind of force inside of me that's preventing me from following that schedule because of, of reasons that I'm just now exploring because I'm now, instead of like hating myself or judging myself, for, mm. I'm now developing some like, Hey, Hey, hey you know, you know, this comes from, you know, these experiences from childhood or um, certain things that I've seen that have made it very difficult to, stay on task. And now that I understand that now I can be mm. a little more effective at actually being more productive and more involved in the real world. Right. Right. Well, it's just, what a beautiful example there. You know, we created a, maybe a bit of a false dichotomy between uh, inner compassion and, and drive and, and discipline, but there you are showing what it looks like when, when you have both, <clears throat> you know, we, we respond terrible to our own tyranny when, when we've got the, the whip cracking, employer who's just saying you got to do this well our bodies protest pretty quick and here you are having the awareness that you actually have to negotiate you know you there's where love and compassion come in that's the fabric between the different parts and so yeah how, how do you communicate within your own dialogue to balance when it's time to push when it's time to reward you know go figure we're, we're in a relationship with ourselves and in the same way that if we have children, we just continually give them chores, tell them they need to achieve high grades, never hug them or, or give them a sense of worth. You know, that there's there's burnout lurking around the corner. There, there's some sort of dissociative disconnection from well-being and the inner mechanism of self-love that sets us up for, at best, the sort of numb and disconnected way of going about life. And at worst, organic disease, shutdown, autoimmune, inflammatory kind of you know just just conditions it, it's a it's a rough way to live so self-compassion and love go figure that the cliches that have been around since time immemorial are sort of the the solution yeah yeah and it's you know it's always tough because you're you know you're, you're dealing with so many different conflicting forces and to find mm. something that works is something to follow it's it, it's tough and it can be it's kind of revolutionary for, for a lot of people who, you know, if they're depressed or they're stressful or um, 
any range of issues that they're dealing with to just be compassionate towards that. It's just such a different mindset from trying to discipline yourself into actually getting things done. And and, and that reminds me, my, my other big thing that I, I really struggled with and I kind of feel bad for myself for just like be, being through that struggle or trying to overcome that struggle. And, and that was procrastination. That was my biggest one. And it's still sort of with me now. And there's a sort of other, I think, bigger uh, macrocosmic issues that have emerged recently that I think are kind of responsible for this one individual behavior, which is procrastination. But that was that was kind of my big thing in elementary school and middle school and, and high school, where I was like, I, I swear I'm the worst procrastinator I know. And <laughs> I would always during school, I would stay up till like 1am, 2am to try to get things done, because I would never do them earlier. And I was just stuck in this constant loop of procrastinating all the time. And uh, I, I would, and, and because I'm a very um, rational kind of intellectual person, I was trying to figure it out and reading lots of different self-help books, like like the best books written on procrastination. I've kind of read them all. And none of them really, none of them were really actually were able to help because all of them were, you know, sort of more external because I, I guess a book can only do so much to kind of put you in the right direction. But all, all of them were kind of teaching valuable strategies to, strategies yeah. to, to, to have more of a structure right and to you know how to kind of kind of how to how to hack yourself into do, doing certain things and, and being on task and being focused but not actually getting at the underlying issue which requires a lot of one-on-one work and uh, i'm mm. only just recently kind of realizing that you know it's just something that runs in the family too is sort of mm. i kind of see this in grandparents and parents of just there, there's sort of i guess a at the same time, like a very hardcore discipline and a, like yeah. a high, a really high standard. But at the same time, there's maybe not enough of a, I, I guess I was never taught enough of how to strike balance maybe, or to like, like just, just one thing that comes to mind is like, how to, like, how do you sleep on time? Like that was something that I was never really taught. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I see it in myself and, you know, my mom doesn't listen to my podcast, so I'm not worried about you know, talking about her, um, not that I would shit talk or anything, but you know, my mom, you know, I see it in my sister, she's in fourth grade and my, my mom is just really not good at putting, uh, putting her to bed on time. And she's, you know, my mom kind of, and my mom is very strict and very high disciplined when it comes to things. And she really, if you make a mistake and do something wrong, you know, she'll be on you and she'll, she gets angry very easily. Um, but at the same time, she's also very loving and sweet and she's been through a lot of issues. So it's, so coming from that place of compassion of like, hey, I was never taught these things, you know, so I'm kind of starting fresh or I'm trying to reprogram myself against all these other forces that are going in the other direction that are preventing me from um, actually, you know, following a, a certain structure and, and doing things in an organized manner. I, th- I think all of that is um, very important to have that bigger picture um, perspective on your childhood and what you were taught and what you weren't taught and things that you were gifted with and other mm. things that you completely lacked. I think that's, that's really important. And that's, that's one thing I've learned a lot from Gabor Mate through his work is having that more holistic approach. And, and of course, from, you know, working with you and, and chatting with you about these things too, it's, 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 it's really revolutionary. So I, I hope uh, more people can, can learn about this. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mate's compassionate inquiries, it's just like the, you know, it's the epitome of the, that 
you know, the add-on to, to, to the kind of classical discipline and push through and pull yourself up kind of attitude of the last generation when someone like Dr. Matei or, or Richard Swartz or just there's there's so many other names. Those are just two of the big schools of inner um, parts sort of investigation these days. It it takes that something I, I really respect from the last generation, by the way, is just how tough they were. And it just says, what happens if we inject more nurturing curiosity into this mix and this is where why i i'm like i strike a very politically moderate stance is i there's there's something so beautiful about this very um sort of caring dimension that society has been allowed to in, in, in kind of a liberal progressiveness but then there is so much value in in these older just sort of strength virtues that exist in, in the the push through um, sort of demeanor of, of a lot of the last generation and immigrant parents that I just always kind of trying to reconcile how do we how do we strike our balance here how do we take the that just for sort of Taoist perspective of when is it time to manifest and when is it time to just rest in the the sort of feminine nurturing background of being and that's you know that's life and, and I think we're in a very privileged time where there's just so much more awareness here in North America to discuss this. And the only downside is there's an information overload. But I, I think uh, I think discussions like this help just to even put it on some people's radar that the task is really balancing the, you know, our, our toughness and striving and that sort of masculine dimension of achievement that's so dominant in society with, uh, with a measured level of like intuitive, receptive, uh, caring, inner love towards self and others, which um, Dr. Matei really emphasizes, you know, we've kind of dropped the ball on. It's, it's become a real leave your kids alone to cry themselves back into shape sort of society. And then it's not a huge mystery why there's a, a just a scourge of um, shared inner criticism and in, in like a hauntingly isolating society where people don't really hug, and, hug each other and touch each other and, and sort of smile and you know, there, there's not as much of a baked in um, just kind of love dynamic. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of therapies available mm. to try to kind of catch it downstream. Yeah. And I've been on campus. I've been back on campus for uh, the first time in like three years, like since high school. I've, I'm, I've been um, back on campus. I've been doing online courses at uh, University of Fraser Valley. I'm just yeah. back on campus now and I've just been observing and and just looking out and, and I, I get the strong sense that there's a lot of lonely people. There's a lot of people mm. that don't have connections and they, you know, I, I see a lot of people who are hungry for that. Like not, not explicitly, but I, I definitely get that sense. Um, but just an interaction I had with one person the other day um, who I just spontaneously met and just started chatting and, you know, uh, he, you know, he was new and, uh, or no, he, he had been here for a couple of years and he was saying like, yeah, I don't really have any friends here. Everybody's kind of really cold and kind of isolated. And even in classes, right. it's not really, it's, it's not. And this person was really friendly and really warm and welcoming. And it's like, and, and I'm like that too. And I've also kind of noticed in my classes, like there's been a bit of a stiffness perhaps. And it's, yeah, I, I think that's representative of a broader societal problem of, uh, I, I guess, people... Um, being unable to really connect with each other. I'm not sure what's causing it, but it's, it's definitely real. And I, I definitely sense it. Oof, yeah. Two, two or three years. And I don't really have any friends like that should be haunting to hear. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, like I was saying earlier, one of the things I'm thinking a lot about is, is love and not, not, not romantic love, not love dependent on other people giving it to you. But I mean, you can call what I'm thinking of is you can call it self love. You can call it cosmic love, divine love, God's love, you know, however, however you want to phrase it. I've just been noticing that there is, there, there's real love to be experienced kind of in every moment if you, if you want to by really kind of focusing on that energy and it, and it doesn't require you to, you know, beg for people's attention or it, it's really just an independent thing and it's, it's real and it's there. And I've been recently exploring it and noticing just how powerful it, it really is. And, uh, I'm just kind of curious. Is that something um, you th you think about the sort of transcendent love that is beyond, you know, social or romantic connection? Something that kind of God bestows us with um, at all times that we oftentimes I think ignore or or fail to recognize. Like it seems so. Um, like like it, it's it's so easy to access on the one hand. Like the, the, basically, what I'm getting at is I. I started doing some meta meditation. I don't know if you've done any of that before, Carson. Just like yeah, self, of course. That's you know self love meditation, Buddhism. You can you can kind of target different things, different people, or different situations, but kind of more mm. of just focusing on the self. And it was just surprising just how much love I could actually feel without mm. using any substances or using you know comedy or using another person or using romance or any of that stuff. It's just it's real and it's there and it's it definitely feels like it comes from a higher energy source. And it just felt like that there was a lot of healing potential um, from that uh, experience of love that is universal and, and kind of available at all times. Yeah, I, I thank you for just like reconnecting that, uh, just the, just even connecting that to myself and listeners. Uh, that was something in, in, in my teens after a, a, an accidental ego death I had, I became very obsessed with and then forgot about for a long time and then in further into adulthood uh, just started reconnecting with and i've met a number of folks i've had personal experiences i've read rumi i've you know delved into kind of the core of vedanta and just sort of seen that you know and I, i'm not saying this to be preachy but the the source of love the, the expansive core of that wonderful blissful feeling can be activated by things outside of us it can be activated by relationships and and you know we can deeply love somebody but the source of it ultimately is an inner and outer one it, it's in the in the in my experience it's in the micro and macro cosmic collapse between the totality of consciousness and the cosmos it is our right to wake up and realize that we are the manifestation of love as the very fabric of our being. And we do this funny sort of um, Western materialist thing where we, we seek it outside of us and, and, but don't really realize all we're doing is activating what already exists within us. And, and the, uh, actually I was just sitting with, with somebody recently who had described, um, I'm going to change just certain details here and there. If I'm ever talking about, people 
but uh so I'll, I'll just say this was uh this was somebody from the prairies and they were describing when they had traveled overseas um they've been practicing spirituality and they were in india and on top of a, a mountain they had a spontaneous enlightenment experience and you know i've 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 heard this so many times it's just it's just sort of ordinary by this point but they remembered what their true nature was and they had the experience of everythingness and nothingness and they tapped into the unearned bliss component and were just weeping with the realization that their nature is love falling in love precedes human relationship even and they they had a good afterglow for a week where they were just you know just aware of that their sort of divine nature as as love and just sitting with them it reactivated that in myself because i've had that um, i've had a few spontaneous satori experiences where there is just the awareness that all those cliches are right like when they say love comes from the inside it's so much deeper than folks would even know what that means it's it's just basically um, as richard Rohr says spirituality isn't about adding more it's about subtracting things away and the good news is underneath all the sort of traumatic residue is the memory that the conscious nature of the soul is a blissful type of love that glues everything together. And it sounds like you're having some wonderful experiences of practicing this. And, um, you know, Catherine Woodward Thomas is a, is a, is a, a speaker and an author who writes a lot about this and sort of a, a, a system of forming relationships, not through, uh, getting somebody to complete you, but actually just falling in love and existing in that state as the the pre-existing state before human forming human relationships, and and there's there's such power to that. Of of um, you know, Rumi spoke about it so much in his poetry of just falling in love and just staying there, and and then watch how the rest of your day unfolds. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and the love that I'm talking about is not even like a, a super mystical love that requires like a lot of effort. Like it was, well, what I'm talking about is, is just very easy. Like just, like just the practice was closing my eyes. And I think I was doing this on the, I think I was doing the waking up app. There was some stuff in there, or I think I was also using some of Muji stuff, but really apart from that, I was just, um, just close my eyes. And for whatever reason, I just felt like, um, I need to just feel or create some love here. And it was surprisingly easy to do that just after five minutes, just kind of like mm. physically focusing kind of in the heart area and just feeling love for myself and love for my, you know, my flaws and my virtues and the things I, I have done and I haven't done and I want to do for the world and for, for God who kind of gave me all these gifts to, to mm. unravel and to explore. Um, it, it, it wasn't like a really difficult thing to do. It was just, right there kind of on the surface mm. and and i think that's getting there is i think tough for for people who are lonely or depressed or anxious or going through whatever problem because they they think that that love is exclusive maybe for other people that without right. other people you don't have that love and so you know how can i be loving if nobody loves me right like that idea that I, I see that idea a lot. And, and one friend in particular, I've been sure. talking to about this and, and he's kind of been exploring this is like, I'm not, you know, no one loves me. I feel lonely. I've had a bunch of rejections. So how can I, you know, like how, how can I feel love without these people? And uh, you know, the great spiritual masters would say, well, you know, you, you, you first embody that love 
and then you attract other people with that as opposed to going in hungry or needy or desperate and kind of seeking that outwardly. And and, and that's and that's tough, right? When you're I, I guess when you've only sort of looked on the surface and, and the love you're looking for is just exclusively romantic or sexual or or social. Um, I, I think there's a deeper uh, experience of love that doesn't require other people. And I think that's kind of the kind of the way out as, as difficult as it may seem for people who maybe are lacking some of that external love. Yeah. It, it, you point to it, uh, you know, a, a tricky chicken and the egg kind of issue. And this is always what, like within healing, there's, there's a, there's a, I don't want to say a friction, but there's a relationship for sure between light work, which is very, you know, that's that spiritual, like realize that you are love. Um, point your intentions towards gratitude, practice metta, uh, loving kindness, meditation, great. And then the shadow work on the other side that says, yeah, okay, but you can't just spiritually bypass your pain and you can't ignore the lower chakras and, and you know, the root work and, and the sort of traumatic residue and just sort of uh, pretend it's not there. And, and that's that's the acknowledgement of the the sort of filters that we create through pain and, you know, that would probably be the argument for a lot of folks who are sitting at home alone with no connection. And then, you know, a guru is telling them just understand that you are love. And they say, well, that's great, but I'm isolated and, and the human brain needs connection. So that's why I always just want, I always want to present the complexity of both sides to this and, and just recognize it is quite a dance, especially being that there's mixed messages because sure love comes from the inside, but we're also neurobiologically wired to to connect with others. And unless we have gone monastic and become monks, we really do need other people. You know, the you know, Christianity, uh, the communion is it's the that's the body of Christ. And, and it's it's achieved through the connection of, of humans interrelating. So how do we how do we balance that sort of very uh, beautiful love light work, which, you know, in the psychedelic side, certain medicines such as MDMA and um, kind of the the mescaline containing cacti sort of push things there with the with the shadow work with, with that that heavy traumatic clearing which sort of correlates with a lot of the um the 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 under the the medicines that kind of connect with that shadowy content like ayahuasca and aboga and, and psilocybin mushrooms yeah well well said well said um paul wants to chime in here paul mutual friend of ours so i'm just gonna let him chime in and see what he has to say Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Paul, welcome. Hey guys, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. yeah sorry. I'm doing a little bit of a meditation in a park, listening to you guys in the background. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. Hey Paul. Good to hear hey, you. Carson. Likewise. Likewise. Uh, thanks for, thanks for the discussion and for, you know, putting this out there for other people to explore and listen and, and, uh, you know, jump into other people's experiences firsthand in, in a, in a safe place. I find it, Super valuable. In fact, I might have um, replayed some of your old podcasts over the last couple of days. So keep up the good work. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's just really, uh, it was, it's sort of a nice surprise to hear, hear somebody I have a lot of fondness for suddenly suddenly connect. So thanks for those kind words, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> totally. totally. So, so, so what's on your mind, Paul? Um, oh, just um, uh, a, a good friend of mine told me to spend lots of time commuting with nature and making sure that you don't uh 
<clears throat> get back to the busy big city life. So I'm still here in California. I haven't got back to New York yet. And um, in between my my uh, task-driven stuff, I've been spending time uh, on the waterfront in San Francisco and today in the park and just kind of having some downtime with myself, which has been great. And so the, the, the timing about you guys sparking out these discussions it, it was perfect for me, <laughs> meeting me where I was at. Hey, right on. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, glad to hear you're doing well and you're connecting with nature. I think that's you know what one place where you can access that love, um, yeah. it, which which can be tricky. But uh, I think that's that's a great avenue to uh, explore and to just recognize this this uh, divine beauty that uh, continually unfolds before our eyes. It's a dance. It's a dance, and uh, you know, throughout the week, I'm I'm going from A to B to C, then back to A again, and so you're watching yourself you know, have that uh, gratitude and experience and then kind of get lost in the activities. And, and then you try to find a way to, to um, you know, just let it go a little bit and allow yourself just to be. And so, um, you know, finding that balance is, is, is crucial, right? So it's, it's certainly once you see the benefits of letting it go and once you mm. start to let it go and it's okay, then all of a sudden you find yourself in that place that you guys are talking about, which is, um, it's magical. So, uh, yeah. So still trying to search out the, uh, the balance. Mm. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Sounds like for you, uh, right now. Yeah. Just you're, yeah. Just sharing a bit of your, your kind of integration experiences is, is what, uh, what you've, you felt motivated to do here on this call. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And so, um, you know, and you guys create that safe place. And I, I thank you both for that and, and the work you're doing. Um, and also, putting um starting to put it out there with uh my close circle of friends and support uh letting them know where i'm at and kind of allowing the door to open to see who's who's ready to have, this, have these conversations and just to kind of share the path i'm on and see if i can pick up some hitchhikers along the way mm. <laughs> yeah well well said i think I, th I think healing is infectious i think it's 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 in the air once you once you express that to people. I think other people feel motivated as well. I, well I, I, think I, yeah. I, I think everybody kind of you know knows that that uh, you know the work life isn't the only life, and that's that's kind of I think the most popular drug that uh, nobody talks about is work. You know the kind of the normal day to day living. Uh, that's right. you know, what, that's what, right. Whatever your job is, um, it's very easy to get addicted to that and to not look inwards and just really see what you need. Um, so I, I commend Paul, you know, you're kind of more in that corporate world, um, unlike Carson and I, so you, uh, I, I hope you can kind of spread your, your healing and, and bring other people along for the ride. <laughs> good, good notice. Good notice, Rob. I, yeah, spend any time in New York and, and you'll, you'll definitely get that sense of activity. Um, and yeah. it, it is, it is addicting and the drug is probably a good analogy. And, um, I've even shared just a little bit, just a glimpse into, you know, some of the, some of the looks into my own past childhood trauma with some close friends and just sort of to see, you know, where they would meet me. And I think I'm three, four for four so far with people saying, Yay. I'm here to listen, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, the, the door is open, right? And so it just removes that alone feeling and just that, you know, identifying with all the wrong things and, you know. Um, yeah, and, and it can, and it can be, um, would you say was it surprising for you, or um, was was it was it strange to kind of see, or that those aren't the right words, but was it I guess 
um, understandable where those people were coming from. Like, I, I think a lot of people are hurting, but you don't really see that on the surface sometimes. And then sure. if you really, if you really create that safe space, if that's, you know, for you and for, for, for many of us, if you're coming from that place of working on yourself and you can open up, it's, it's often just incredible to see the way people open up and like, Oh man, I've really been struggling with this. And you know, like a, a lot of people who don't have a counselor or who don't have a strong totally. support system, suddenly they just start spilling, you know, feelings, suddenly in a conversation I, i've noticed that over text a couple of times uh, with a couple of friends right i'm just like hey how are you you know how's it going and like suddenly they send like a couple paragraphs of like hey i've really been you know struggling with this one thing yeah. and it's like wow okay and then this you know one person that comes to mind and she's you know fairly older and and then doing well for herself and suddenly you know i just i just kind of push the right button at the right time for, for no reason and suddenly she's like oh man i've really been struggling with this one thing and i just I, i'm not sure what to do about it and you know, so it's it's uh, extraordinary how how many people are are suffering and sometimes how complacent they can be um, about their suffering. What a great what a great notice and what great feedback that uh, you create that for them to open up like that and just how close it was, right? And so so often, in my own experience, I uh, I don't knock on that door with my support network, and but I so to answer your first question, was I surprised and um it's a little bit of a risky behavior, right? Cause you, you're kind of hiding these, these, these things you're on, but I've had past experiences where I've showed them where I was at and the exact same feedback and support was given. Now, maybe over the last year plus I've taken deeper dives into my background and kind of embraced all the ugly components that, that, um, that I'm still processing. And so there's a, that, again, that's a little bit of a risky behavior for me, but you know, again, I'm starting to <clears throat> share that just saying, this is what I'm looking at. And to a friend, it's only been a, a handful. They've all come out in their own way and saying they've met me where I was at and they recognized. And, you know, uh, listening that Dr. Matei uh, podcast with, with, uh, with Rogan. And uh, when you watch him or just, you know, you listen to him as it connects with people, he has like this trauma whispering, you know, gift where he can recognize where people are at and they're, you know, they're, they're processing things. And it's such a humanized empathetic way of kind of interacting with each other and even in new york and even in california where it's it's such a you know high production area and you just peel it back a little bit and everyone's everyone's a beautiful human in the hmm. mm. yeah yeah i i totally agree with you um and uh i think it's inspiring what uh, you know what you're doing and obviously we're all inspired by each other and in various different ways um, and we're all learning from each other, so it's it's good to it's good to hear somebody uh, like you, Paul, who's who's on this path. So so th thanks for chiming in and, and sharing your story. Likewise, likewise. Thank you both so much. Keep up the good work. Thanks, yeah. Paul. Take all care. Right. Talk to you sometime soon. Bye. Yeah. So we we got about half an hour, forty minutes. Um, there's there, there's so many different directions we could we could take this, Carson. <laughs> You're talking about religion and love and. There's just so many different thoughts that, that come to mind. Um, I also do want to talk about mescaline and San Pedro. That was kind of one thing yeah. we wanted to, to riff on and then discuss a little bit for, for a number of reasons. But just, just I think to, to close off the, the love conversation, um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a Christian pastor, and he was saying in the Bible, it, it doesn't say that God gives you love or God provides love. It says that God is love. And you can you can merge with that love, and 
Um, another one of my friends who's been on this podcast, he's, he's an Orthodox Christian, and he was talking about the, the idea of theosis, of merging with God um, and, and, and recognizing the, the experience of, of oneness where the, the, the sharp distinction or the, the separation between man and God and this idea that man is this isolated bubble that is, uh, that is divided or separate from, from the world that you know, the process of theosis of, of merging with God is recognizing the, the illusory nature of that separateness. And, and it is all, and it is all about love um, and really feeling that love, not as an idea or as a concept or something written in the old Testament that sounds interesting, but as something that is, is real. And uh, that's also reflected in, in Vedanta. The, uh, you know, Brahman is described as consciousness, bliss, and being. Those are kind of the three attributes of God, um, and and bl- bliss is that crucial part um, that uh, that that is pretty universal across religion. So I think um, moving more and more, or instilling that experience more and more for a lot of people, I think uh, um, is important to kind of fulfilling or to actualizing these these uh, important religious ideals that uh, many of us try to uh, move towards. Yeah. Yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I completely resonate with that. And, and the theosis idea, um, if you take Joseph Campbell's um, work across the sort of entire world of myth systems he studied, he talked about the atonement phase and the apotheosis phase. So that's both like atonement being at one with the father and the apotheosis being the highest possible level the crescendo of sort of spiritual experience and in all cases there's there tends to be a realization of love and 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 um in many cases an inseparableness of of kind of self and god at least if you go to india you're going to hear a lot of that mm. yeah yeah, but, yeah but, and uh, alan watts i was listening to alan watts the other day and he was uh he, he was talking about how the 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 mystic can have these experiences of love and recognizing this universal bliss consciousness and being that God provides. And from, from that standpoint, he can, the mystic returns to the world, you know, working or trying to achieve whatever goals he wants, but instead of looking out at the world and seeing kind of separateness or division or seeing grayness or seeing conflict, the, the, the lens in which the mystic sees the world is entirely different. He sees it, through a lens of deep unity rather than yeah. separateness. And that unity, I've just been kind of, kind of visualizing like, like what would that be like? And, uh, th- and I'm going to connect this now to one thing I, I was listening to, uh, to Sam, Sam Harris say on his podcast, um, or not, not on his podcast. This was his, uh, he does these daily one minute messages to, to all his uh, waking up subscribers. And he was saying something that seemed um, kind of obvious, but also like, like nobody's really, um, I guess, grasp this or actually applied this um, perspective. And, and he was just saying that right now you can be happy if you, if you actually want, you can be joyful. And he was saying just, you know, inside your mind, you can, you, you can put a, you can, literally you can put a smiley face inside your mind and just like, just, and, and even like physically just create a smile on your face and you can be happy like right now and then look at the world. Like it's not a matter of, you know, requiring some enlightenment or some mystical experience or somebody else or something to cause that happiness. Like you, you can be the cause of that happiness right now. 
and uh, and then then going back to the Alan Watts idea, you know, I'm I, I'm interested in 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 how to more and more actualize that mystic vision of looking out of the world amidst great suffering and turmoil and disease and conflict and, and having that perspective of, of, of unity and oneness and love as opposed to friction and contraction and suffering and, and all these, these horrible things that, that we're all faced with. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the aim. And I always encourage everybody do, do your, do some of that, mom and dad childhood work too just because the i who was i talking to recently they were just talking about monks in a monastery who who it it was observed amongst themselves they were they'd all yeah they, they had that kind of crown chakra um perspective of bliss but they had all the human characteristics still they still had all their childhood injuries they still had competitiveness and spiritual materialism and that's what happens when you don't do the sort of lower chakra shadow work first is that, that sort of spiritual bypass of just trying to be happy, which can sometimes create a tug of war where there's a fear relationship towards the other feelings. So again, it's always a dance of, of, of happiness is sort of like in joy or bliss is an ultimate nature, but grief and, and the, you know, the shadows that are cast by love as part of the human experience and just recognizing love in its highest form welcomes everything, all the different pieces involved in the big dance. Mm. Yeah, I, I appreciate you you kind of bringing that other perspective in, and I, I think a, g- a good way to merge the two is using love as kind of medicine to deal with some of the fear and the grief, like not running away from it or bypassing yeah. it through love, but using that as a uh, um, as a medicine to to treat that. You know, like go go into that fear, go into that grief, go into the depression, like really go into the, your addiction, whatever it is, and use love as your as your as your lens of understanding that, that difficult emotion, right? And rather than a place of, of hatred and of judgment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And anybody having a panic attack where someone says like, hey, feel good, or don't feel that way, smile, they'll tell you, ah, it's a, there's a little more to it, you know? Mm. Uh, it's, it's interesting you you bring that up. I've, I've been reading a lot about this, about panic attacks. Um, and I guess sort of bringing awareness to the fact that i that I've, I've had them recently and that I'm capable of having them. Like I didn't really know what that is, or, or at least I think I subconsciously had this idea that a panic attack is something that's, that's so bad and that I I'm not capable of, of going that far maybe, or mm-hmm. that a panic attack is of such extreme order that, you know, the panic that I feel is somehow lower than that, but I've been reading into it and it's like, no, no, I, th- I think these are, you know, the legitimate cases of having a panic attack. And, uh, I mean, just to throw this at you, like, what, what are, um, are there any strategies um, that you use or that you've used with clients to, to kind of get over it in, in, in that present moment or uh, in the long term as well? Yeah, well, you know, panic is, uh, first of all, very humbling because, yeah, most of the people, who, when we, anyone, myself included, when you have a first panic attack, you think, oh, not, not me, but. It's 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 a uh, it's everybody's very capable of it with a nervous system that's capable of having a feedback loop of awareness of itself because that's what panic is it's it's noticing fear and having a fearful reaction to fear sort of like putting a microphone in front of a speaker it's just it's going to echo louder and louder and louder and so generally yeah, the the short term strategies with a panic attack like when they're happening is to start to con contrary to what a lot of people think is is actually really 
uh, start to notice the sensations associated with it, uh, breaking it down into there's you know there's um, shallow breathing, there's a heart heart rate increase. You think, oh, deep breathe, that'll I'll fix it with deep breathing. In reality, um, a, a big tool for extinguishing panic is actually just noticing the sensations, not trying to change them, and building the awareness that there is no danger. Uh, starting to notice the the cognitive catastrophizing. A lot of people fear that they'll pass out or that they'll fear, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to have a heart attack. This is so bad. My heart shouldn't be beating that quick. And people actually recover from panic attacks pretty quick once they start to notice that the sensations uh, don't possess any danger to them. They're actually in the physiological um, safe range most of the time. It's extraordinarily rare to to pass out from a panic attack. Mm. And... Mm -hmm. And so, it, again, it's just taking away the fear relationship to it. Easier said than done for listeners who, who are struggling with panic, I know. But um, that's the short term. And the long term is, is just starting to look at what lifestyle factors are going on, where the system is uh, spending a fair amount of time in that sort of upper window, fight, flight, or freeze kind of state of fear. And that's, that's, that's a lifelong art of just learning to honor the body, take care of it. Um, find the food sleep relationships and contributions that that uh, that help the body go into a parasympathetic state instead of feeling like it's always up against some sort of threat which is just it's quite constant in North American society mm. yeah and you know when you're in that panic attack mode um, I, I haven't had one recently but I, I did earlier this year uh, several times and uh, it's 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 difficult and, and I like what you said about establishing safety because when you're there like you the the primary issue at least for me and i I think for many people too is like something is going to happen to me like i'm going to have a heart attack right now you know yeah yeah i'm 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 in danger and and i remember i think in my last one when when this happened it was um i I was just kind of thinking to myself like the the way to fix this problem right now hypothetically like what would i need to get out of the state of panic. And I was thinking what I sort of, what I cognitively need is for a medical expert to look at me right now and, you know, check my pulse rate and check my blood pressure and say, you know, you're not in danger right now. And that would, that would cure it. That that would fix it in that moment. And I was thinking to myself like, Oh, like that's all that requires. But if you don't, you know, if you're not in a medical clinic Mm -hmm. and you're not being checked up, then that danger is still around you. You still feel like something's wrong with you. And, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's good to note. I guess statistically, you know, it's it's unlikely that something's happening to you. But um, I, I I wonder how you establish that safety cognitively without the deep breathing. You know, that piece aside, how you kind of feel safe when you feel like something bad's happening to you. Yeah, I mean, I, right. I'm a therapist, so I'm I'm a little biased towards the practice of of working on it in counseling because rather than pulling yourself up on the bootstraps you're you're with you're in a safe container of somebody who's um and in many cases therapists actually work to team up to bring panic into the session so that you both have a chance to practice it together in a safe container um you know that's cold oh i've lost you carson I've lost you. Does someone, does somebody want to do a thumbs up to let me know? So you're hearing me? Yes. Thumbs up. Okay. Okay. So it is on Carson's end. Yes. We'll just wait. Ha- 
Yeah. Sorry. What's going on? Oh, okay. Now, now you're back. Sorry. I just missed kind of everything you said. You, you just oh, left your, your sound went off. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? My phone was getting a phone call and I guess it, uh, it's, it's the phone is smarter than a lot of us and it knows not to multitask, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what what I, I I don't know how much was missed, but I the long and short of it was, for those who can work with a therapist to to be in a context of a safe container to experience panic with somebody uh, is a quick way to help extinguish it. Uh, but for those who are who alone, I would say strike when the iron is cold, and come up with a, uh, some ways to build your own container and sort of like a a like like a curious scientist expect panic to happen. And be prepared to greet it with uh, some some particular things that'll help ground you through it. Knowing from the top down, your goal is to learn that nothing dangerous is happening. So what will that mean? It'll mean um, people, places, and things, objects, scents, sights, sounds, just sort of stuff where you sort of plan to experience panic in a sort of intentional sense. And by repeating it paired with safe and loving stimuli, it helps to speed up the process of extinguishing this misunderstanding that you're in danger. Mm. Yep. And, and also keeping in mind that you survived the previous panic attacks, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like before you also thought you were having a heart attack or something was wrong with you and you survived that and you're fine, you know? So recognizing like, like that's kind of the, the, one of the meditative insights of this experience is transient. It'll go away, right? It, it will go away, you know? Yeah. And, and what about the deep breathing piece? Because I was listening to Huberman recently, and, and he's really adding a lot of value to things that I'm exploring because he kind of explains the scientific basis for, uh, like he was explaining the what you call the physiological sigh, which is just mm. essentially kind of an upgrade from just deep breathing in that it's, um, you, you, you take a big breath in and then another short one, and then a long exhale. And that, um, I, I couldn't explain all the neuroscience for you here, but it would, it, uh, it, it, um, it, it uh, more quickly activates the the parasympathetic response as opposed to yeah, just doing sure. regular deep breathing. But 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 that little thing aside, um, just you know breathing in for five, breathing out for ten, making sure the exhale is longer. Um, is that also something you emphasize or you think is important in that situation when you need to calm yourself down? I mean, I, I, I've I think it's helped me before. Um, I, I think it's both things because it's often kind of a a, uh, a contraction around the chest and um, a fast um, heartbeat, which which it, it makes it difficult. And I know many people have also had this experience is like, so so the deep breathing is going to cause pain in the chest because you're already kind of beating really fast. So, yeah. yeah. And so it's, it's kind of like I wanted, okay, so I'm supposed to do deep breathing here, but it's hurting. So mm. maybe deep breathing is bad. So like, what the fuck do I do? I remember having yeah. uh, an encounter like this. So I, I think maybe the you know, the cognitive piece is like, okay, you know, you're feeling pain here, your heartbeat is, is racing, but that's okay. You're not in danger. You're going to survive this. And then also kind of add the deep breathing in to kind of relax yourself and to calm down. Yeah. So everybody should practice breath work. Like it's just the, the benefits are tremendous to, to do it once a day, multiple times a day, to do it enough where you start to become like the unconscious habit of taking deeper breaths um, that's just, everyone should do that because that's sort of like the preparation for when panic happens. The the thing about deep breathing with panic is yes, it can be helpful, but there is our, there are many cases and, and people might listen and relate having a panic attack and then starting to think I'll make the stop with deep breathing can sometimes create more fear of, 
Oh mm. God, this is bad. I need to stop this. I'm taking deep breaths. Oh God, it's not working. I'm really screwed. Like though, that's the sort of thing that can happen. So it's, it's just, it is often folk wisdom. Actually it's clinical wisdom that if you're, your anxiety is up past like a seven, eight out of 10, and you're in panic, deep breathing, uh, and certainly meditative techniques, they, they, they can sometimes make you feel more anxious. Um, and so vigorous movement and, and exercise um, often is more grounding at that point. Um, but again, it's person to person. I've had, uh, I've had enough panic uh, experiences across my life that I, I do really, uh, deep breathing does help me when I'm in that place. Cause I've, I, I'm not panicking behind panic. If something's happened, I'm like, yep, this is a physiological response. I know why this is happening. And, you know, I'm actually quite calm behind panic. So if, uh, yeah, breathing, breathing helps. And part of it's just knowing your relationship to, to, to how connected you are to your breath, how much you practiced it. And, and I recommend just having a toolkit prepared, written in your phone somewhere. What are your one to three to 10 grounding techniques? And can you combine a couple and, and are some more useful with lower anxiety than higher anxiety? It's, it's, it's a discussion worth having. Mm. Yeah. And, and like I was saying earlier, the, the big issue is, is that often people feel like they're having a heart attack. And so it's like, yeah, totally. You know, that, so that, that, that's, that, that's just a really tough place to be in, you know, cause you're, you, oh, it's, you, yeah. you feel like something, you know, something wrong is happening. Um, yeah. but I guess, you know, keeping in mind that you, you know, you survived this before you've been there before, um, and that this is normal. Um, I, I, I guess if you, cause I, I've been down the rabbit hole when you look online, I'm feeling chest pain, I'm feeling anxious. And it's like, go to the hospital right now. That's like the, the number one thing that comes up. And so may, maybe there's not enough awareness potentially in society, um, that it is normal to, you know, have these strong pulsating sensations when you're feeling stressed out like that's perfectly normal i think some people including myself just i've kind of only recently recognized that that's actually the case um as opposed to sort of just looking it up online and kind of the kind of the mainstream general you know precautionary principle is like okay if you're having chest pain then yeah go to the hospital because you know what if but i think uh having more awareness as a society that you know we're living in increasingly stressful times and you know a, a whole boatload of stress downloaded into our phones and into our minds and it's 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 perfectly normal to to feel stressed out and to feel physical pain as a result and that you can overcome it mm-hmm. yeah well for, i mean first of all google is is the last thing um <laughs> that i'd suggest in that case just because every time i have a sore throat google tells me i have lymphatic cancer and it's it's usually just not going to help the situation but uh my hope is just that by hearing this sort of thing people start to have more curiosity towards their nervous systems and more awareness of the unbelievable range they have from the accelerated adrenaline driven highs of pounding heart to the deep numb disconnected collapsy lows of the dorsal vagal nerve like we we can sustain an unbelievable amount of activation and deactivation without being in physical danger at least in the short term um you know 30 years of that will start to uh, really compound but mm. yeah, if nothing else, um, we, we can learn to be less afraid of primal and even older responses that, that our body is very capable of having safely. Yeah. And so using the cognitive approach of like, hey, I'm safe right now. I'm not in danger. Like, can that can that alone push you into the parasympathetic mode or does that more 
or does that more so require the deep breathing? And I also kind of want to hear just, I guess, kind of an overview of what, you know, deep breathing, like what, like, what does that do? Is, is that, is that the most powerful thing you can do to mm. actually calm down your nervous system or can the cognitive safety approach kind of be enough alone? Well, the, the more emotional you are, the less helpful cognition is just because cognition is very new and it doesn't have a direct pathway to the limbic centers of the brain that are generating the panic. It's got a very indirect route to get there. So generally, the more emotional you are, the better it is to use ancient responses such as breathing, such as touch, such as uh, connection, such as sense, smells are really helpful. The things that have a direct thalamic pathway into mediating the fear circuitry in your brain, um, cognitive stuff do it like it's 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 like if given the choice absolutely do the little engine that could and say i think i can and i'm safe and this is fine and i survived this um but typically cognitive responses tend to be a little more superficial and and it's not to say that they won't work for some people but at at the very at the very least have at least one or two physical responses in there go into a very cold space hold ice cubes take a freezing shower uh, feel your feet on on cold <laughs> for ground. me it's the like, opposite by the way for, for me it's the opposite i need something warm <laughs> there okay yeah for, for yeah, me it's, it's always something so hot something yeah. hot and warm yeah 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 exactly i'm probably giving another bunch of people <laughs> panic attacks with that suggestion <laughs> carson said so carson told me to grab an ice pack and put it on my chest and now i'm <laughs> Even more panicked. Who's that guy? Let, let me hunt him down right now. This is the guy who said Dr. Gabor Mate told him to take ayahuasca. It's happening again. I just keep saying yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, okay, so just to, before we go to, to mescaline briefly, um, so the deep breathing, so that, so is that kind of, you know, many people say that's the most powerful, easy, accessible tool to use to get into the parasympathetic mode. So can you just kind of yeah. highlight kind of what exactly is happening when you do uh, deep breathing in a state of panic? Yeah, yeah. So again, especially um, when you start to take deep breaths and especially long, slow out breaths, those are the physiological cue for your body to slow down the heart rate. Um, breathing in is the cue to speed up your heart rate. So when you start to take longer, slower out breaths, you're you you're hack i hate this term but you're hacking into the feedback loop so your heart starts to slow and then the interpretive parts of your brain that make meaning out of things they sense oh the heart rate's slowing we must be safe and you start to get this you get this calming circuit between the the primal limbic threat detection and the more mm -hmm. frontal part of the brain that that says are we safe or not and like interprets through more logical parts um, even the, the very rapid thalamic, like amygdala pathways that just check before we've even thought things, are we safe? Um, you, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're calming your body. And so breath is just like, it's just, it's just a crucial staple to being a regulated human today. And um, not to go too far into the weeds, but it's astonishing how often, uh, you know, an anti-anxiety medication or a benzodiazepine will be prescribed without just checking what is somebody's relationship to breath because if mm. somebody is chronically holding their breath from morning to night uh medicating it before you've just tried a lower hanging fruit of figuring out is the person just not breathing right like it's it's just such a, a basic and important starting point 
Mm. Yeah, and I was talking earlier about that sort of conflict that can arise, which is it, it's interesting because you, you're feeling chest pain and you're 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 mm. taking shallow breaths, and then now you should take long breaths. Um, and I've kind of danced around that you know situation, and yeah. um, it, it it can be tough. So. So why are you breathing shallow when you're in a state of, of panic? Why is, why is that happening? Do you know? I think people smarter than me could explain it better from like a, okay. a place of evolution. But um, there, I, I could just say with a lot of immediacy, um, anxiety just makes us take uh, shallow breaths. And I think it's like, <laughs> I'm sure there there's some evolutionary reason I'm forgetting. Um, yeah. That makes there's a reason for it, but it, to me, it seems almost like a poor design because it's when, it's when we need it's when we need breath the most. Um, and right. I, I think I think there's something in the fight or flight response that that made survival more beneficial to like uh, to 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 breathe quieter, something to do with predators. But it is woefully ill-equipped for modern society, where most of the time we just need to be taking deeper breaths. Um, to your other point, there are so many. Uh, tendons and tissues around the heart and the chest that can strain with chronic stress. So you, you, it's like, you know, it reminds me of the biblical, like the rich get richer, the poor get poorer sort of um, adage. Because the, the, you know, the, the more trauma in the system, the harder it is to breathe, and the more chronic stress. And yet, that's when you need it most. And yet, the more parasympathetic you are, the, the more delicious it is to take big breaths. So that's why shadow work and and uh, practice with breath is is a practice and not something ideally done just when there's panic it's like you know save for the winter because it's mm. it's what you do making that hay in the sunshine is what is going to be most beneficial when things do get very stressful mm. yeah yeah and of course it, it is a big uphill battle when you're feeling pain in that area and you're you're supposed to deep you're supposed to breathe deeply in that right. area which causes more contraction. So it's, it's, you got to kind of balance between like, okay, first of all, I'm having pain here. That's okay. I'm safe. I'm not in any danger. Now let's take some, you know, deep breaths and just kind of, you know, embrace the pain in that area and know that, you know, by taking these bigger breaths, you're kind of temporarily sort of exercising that area, which is already kind of inflamed, I guess. But, you know, in the, in the long term, you know, you do sense like some more relaxation, more ease coming in and, uh, and and I, and I think you're right to to take a more preventative approach to kind of do that beforehand as opposed to and that's sort of like oh I'm having a heart attack and I can't breathe and oh my god what the fuck's going on and then trying to breathe deeply it's it, it's a it's a real big crisis in that mode and I know many many people who have gone through this very recently and uh, there's just not enough awareness around it there, there's a lot of medical awareness in our society of like <laughs> you know go get your cancer screenings done you know. You know Go get vaccinated. Go get this test done. Go do your blood work every year. Go do this. Go get your your your, your yearly checkup. But there's not a lot of like, hey, get you know, uh, you know, how are you breathing? What is your relationship to exercise and to supplementation? And you know, how how is your sleep? Like those kind of things are, are not really uh, encouraged or promoted. Or there's not there's not very much education coming from the top down. So I hope, uh, I, I guess, with social media and YouTube and podcasting, there can be more awareness around those things yeah and maybe curriculum will change at a point because i would estimate far more children are going to be encouraged to get a bivalent vaccine than they are to to <laughs> learn to meditate and, and breathe well and, and connect to their body carson are you an anti-vaxxer are you being anti-vax right now how dare uh -oh, you uh -oh. <laughs> how dare you yeah i know yeah yeah you you make a good point there absolutely yeah
Yeah. Okay. So let's. So you want to do another ten minutes here? Two forty-five. I got to go around then. Sure. Is that well, working? We got we to gotta get this. Uh, we got to get the mescaline in, into this. So let's. Well, let's, yeah. Uh... Yeah, I know. I know. We're kind of ten minutes is not enough, but we can yeah. pluck one thing. I guess yeah. I, I did want to you... talk about it. Sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Well, go what ahead. Are, what are, what are your thoughts? Is it is it something better to defer to like get its own dedicated space, or do you want to try <laughs> to talk? What what do you what's your sense? Yeah, well, I think we'll do a dedicated thing, a dedicated space for this in the future, um, because that's something that I want to explore personally. I know you've explored it, but what, I, I guess I'll just kind of you know give you the floor a little bit here. I mean, what um, is your sense of, of the energy surrounding this, this specific plant medicine and what has it kind of helped you with or um, like how have you kind of benefited from using mescaline or using San Pedro? Yeah. Yeah. It's, Big question. It's, well, no, it's, 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 you know, it's, just, it's merit speech. I, it's, it's funny when it comes to psychedelics, I, I've always got two answers because I've got my, my youthful years of um, recre- recreational and, and very spiritual use. And then the, uh, you know, more recent decade of, of clinical and therapeutic and, and very medicine focused. Um, I got to say the earlier days in many ways are more fun to talk about just because when we were young and we were um we were eating peruvian torch cacti it 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 was it just opened up a a a really magical world and and there was this strong innocent sense of just color and love uh connecting all things and it it was a, a different tone from a lot of the um you know mushrooms we'd eaten which which would certainly take to uh often usher us into um, frightening and beautiful places, but the the first cacti experience, I just remembered the the colors really amplifying, and just this gentle curiosity towards everything, with a sense of kind of um, really highlighting. I know we've said love a lot, but just kind of the loving fabric that was underneath everything, and and um, in later years, I, I've connected with it in formal ceremony circles where San Pedro is often the the, the cacti and for those listening peyote peruvian torch and san pedro all contain mescaline the which was really to my understanding kind of the first aware and popularized uh, psychedelic in, in kind of the western world and all this huxley certainly as rab is doing lots of reading um, <laughs> had a lot to lot to say about it and experience it but uh in these in these more these more recent circles uh it, there there's a practice of human connection, uh, community. It's a medicine that unlike the ayahuascas and mushrooms where you very much go inwards, there's a lot of interacting, there's music, there's a heart opening experience mm. that has flavors of MDMA. But of course, mm. this is a, a long, um, a very long medicine that just, yeah, it, it tends to emphasize the positive. It, it really seems like a, a, a light work focus versus the, the shadowy material. Yeah, and I, I've done MDMA, LSD, and small amounts of mushrooms. And uh, the, the LSD and mushrooms tend to create panic and anxiety, and some of that uh, uh, chronic pain issues kind of arise. Whereas MDMA, th- th- there's there's kind of fear every time I've done trips of like, you know, what if the, you know, what if I get a lot of anxiety and it exacerbates it and that was kind of true in, to, to varying extents for, for LSD and for mushrooms, but not but for MDMA. It was the exact opposite. 
it was kind of like, holy crap, like, wow, I was worrying about nothing. And it's, it's the exact opposite. Now I'm feeling this like warm, fuzzy, loving feeling kind of in my body and my chest. And, and it's just the, the opposite of, of what uh, mushrooms and LSD tend to provide for, for some people. So where, where do you think mescaline kind of falls uh, between that range? Yeah, it, it's it's definitely, it's in my experience and in the circles I've been in, it's closer to the MDMA uh, experience in terms of what, how people talk and what they tend to share. Um, I, it's funny because prior to this, I, I tell you, I was like, ah, people, people don't say mescaline, they say San Pedro, but then I, I'm full of a contradiction all the time. I'm constantly contradicting myself. But <laughs> um, the, the part of me that's really into the pharmaco side of it uh, will just say, mescaline is very similar to MDMA. They're both uh, phenethylamines in their structure which is like a type of psychedelic that's a little more dopamine promoting than the the sort of tryptamine counterparts where you find your LSD and, and you find your psilocybin DMT, uh, which they, they just don't push the levers as much with dopamine. So from a chemical point of view, um, mescaline and the cacti have a lot more to do with, with uh, MDMA. With that said, it's more psychedelic than MDMA is. So the, yeah. there is still some... There's some there's some distortion. High, like the high doses used in indigenous cultures, um, there there's vision quests. There's there are like psychedelic hallucinatory journeys. I have never taken doses of that caliber. I've more had one foot on the ground. Though I will say there have been a couple cases. There was one in 2012 where I had a profound awareness of like a childhood part. So like shadow work does happen on it too. And I've seen some people have, <laughs> go into really dark tunnels. It's just not as common. Mm. Yeah. And this uh, the heart opening, this love, compassion, you know, with, with psilocybin, I've heard many people say that that's something you kind of have to create or kind of approach with that mindset a little bit because a lot of shadow material comes up. And so approaching it with love and compassion um, is important to get through it. Whereas with MDMA, it seems to automatically induce that love and compassion um for for mescaline for, from your experience has it been more of a has it been more naturally conducive to to those kind of feelings yeah in, in my experience especially in the more recent years in ceremony context yeah it really nudges it towards and you know that's where it's a little hard to separate from the people i've been with because they're they're there to do light work but i i would say it, it just it definitely, in my experience, nudges things towards, uh, to, yeah, toward, towards an awareness of love and light. And I, I remember a ceremony I had uh, February, I think, 2021. Even my handwriting for, for like a month after just looked more beautiful. Like it, it had a real emphasis mm. of highlighting what is lovely in life. Mm. Yeah. And did you, I guess, I think we'll talk about this more next time, but did you... Uh, have an experience similar to Huxley and when he describes sort of an infinite kind of multiplication of like things in your visual field of like, or, or infinite multiplication of the kind of beauty of things. I, I think he describes like looking at a carpet or a painting for like three or four hours and just staring at it and looking at the granular beauty and wonder that's there. Is, is that something you've had? And so to clarify, you mean like very like visually, Yes. Yeah. 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 Visually like fixating kind of on one thing as opposed to kind of, 
uh, well, yeah, I, I guess fixating kind of on one thing and recognizing how beautiful it is without the need for novelty. I guess that's kind of what I got from Huxley was that he was able to recognize a kind oh, of intrinsic yeah. beauty to reality without looking everywhere. Like just like I said, he was looking at a painting or a carpet and recognizing the infinite beauty of just that alone without needing anything, anything else. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had that. I've had that. Um, I've had that with cactus, but I, I've had that in other states, too. Um, and I've, I've had that, I've just had that in nature, like just inducing tears as well. So that's a mm. state I've, I've fortunately had uh, here and there across life. And um, yeah. I, th I think psychedelics are, are likely to usher in. The, the, from a strictly visual perspective, nothing has done that for me more than LSD. I, I, it's just like the level of seeing into the details of things, including seeing through the capillaries and the skin tissues of the body. It's just like it's mystifying. Mm. But that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, it was great talking to you. I think this was time yeah. well spent. Enjoyed it. Yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. You and I have a way of kind of having a plan and going somewhere else. But I think we always go where we need to. Yeah. Yeah, let's try to do it more frequently as, as time allows. I think, uh, you know, um, some amount of people joined. And I know a lot of people listen after afterwards as well. So I think uh, there's a lot of value in doing this kind of thing. Yeah. Hey, any, anytime, Rav. Thanks for the invite. And I look forward to talking a bit more offline. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, uh, Paul, also for, for chiming in. And uh, we'll see you next time. Okay. Take care, friend. Bye.